As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Hello and welcome to Total Football. I'm Ian Irving, keeping the podcast seat warm this week whilst Tom is away. On today's episode, we discuss the trials and triumphs of England's hopeful goalscorers as Harry Kane hobbles off on the south coast, whilst Marcus Rashford's double reminds us why he's a contender for the plane to Russia. We discuss matters on the Iberian Peninsula as we find out about the first Englishman since Lineker to don the hoops of Barcelona. Plus, we look back on the She Believes Cup as Phil Neville took charge of the Lionesses for the first time. But first, back here in the studio, I'm joined by my Mancunian mate, Jim White. Jim, how are you? I'm very good, thanks very much, yeah. Good, let's get straight into it then. Only, only one place to start, really. Manchester United 2, Liverpool 1. Now, before the game, there was lots of talk about Mourinho parking buses and all this sort of thing. Uh, his response was, I don't care, quite clearly after the match. But it was more than just parking a bus, wasn't it? I think uh, there's been a lot of talk um, this season, uh, incorrectly, uh, that Mourinho is a, a busted flush, you know, um, it, because he hasn't uh, made United transformative into a great attacking side. Um, but actually, I still don't think there's anyone better at a one-off game plan than Jose Mourinho. And what he's particularly brilliant at uh, is spotting the creative uh, outlet and fulcrum of the opposition and negating it. So Mohamed Salah, who has been on fire, uh, was virtually... Um, uh, 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 he, he was anonymous in that game. Um, and it wasn't simply that Mohamed Salah was anonymous. Um, Mourinho had worked out how Mohamed Salah has been playing so well and worked out how best to stop him. And it wasn't just a case of Ashley Young playing very, very well. It was the roots and the way that the ball normally would have got to uh, Salah was was disrupted. And Mourinho is still very, very good at that. And you can see the frustration on Jurgen Klopp's face after the game because he realised that it isn't as simple as parking the bus. It isn't simply the manner of the way that the team defend. 
it's it's the brilliant way in which you make an opposition uh, look as though they've had all their teeth extracted. I spoke to Ashley Young after the game, actually, and I asked him, you know, what was the secret to stopping not only Mo Salah, but obviously Firmino and Mane as well. And he said exactly that. It was about the function of the team, not about the performance of individuals. And he reads this. I don't know, I don't know what he does, whether he you know, accrues all the statistics or whether it's simply his observation or whether he has a very, very good scouting department. But he's brilliant at that. It's a very, very Italian way of doing it. And of course, he won the Champions League with an Italian club. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's not attacking. You know, if you look at uh, the way in which uh, Klopp plays, it's virtually the same whoever the opposition is. A Mourinho team changes according to the opposition, and that's a very crafty way of managing a football team. He's quite happy to make unpopular decisions as well, isn't he? I mean, that was a, a symbolic substitution, wasn't it? Marcus Rashford, the two-goal hero, local lad, Mancunian, all the things that he is coming off, and Marouane Fellaini replacing him. 20 minutes to go, United 2-1 up, and Mourinho just being happy to settle for what he had. Oh, and he loves it, of course. Yeah, you know, he, he relishes it. Yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I thought... At that point, I thought, well, it's either going to be uh, one one matter, uh, or you know, uh, um, he, he just Alexis Sanchez hasn't really shone in a Manchester United shirt and was was poor um, compared to the others uh, on Saturday. I thought that was going to be one of them and to bring off the the two goal hero. But of course, he had a plan. There was a system. He knew what he was doing. And uh, actually, Fellaini is one of those characters who nobody else in football can quite work out what his point is. And yet he always does a great job for Mourinho. Let's talk about the two goal hero then, Marcus Rashford. It was his first Premier League start since Boxing Day. That was quite a way to remind everyone of his quality. Yes, the the information was that he'd lost a little bit of confidence. He hadn't been performing well, even when he'd come on as a substitute. He'd looked a bit uh, off the pace uh, during training. But latterly, apparently, during training, he'd really picked up again. And there was that kind of sense of joie de vivre about him. And he really, really benefited from Romelu Lukaku. It's what we were saying before about it's often the player, not the player you're immediately thinking of, but the other two players one step away who make the difference. And Romelu Lukaku was bullying Dejan Lovren all game and creating opportunities for Rashford, which he took with real aplomb. Not just a reminder to Manchester United and, and the fans and the manager, but also maybe a reminder to Gareth Southgate too. He has to be on that playing to Russia, doesn't he? James Ducker writing in the, in the Telegraph says as much. Oh, yes. He, he, I think Southgate's always uh, admired uh, Rashford. I think he'd have probably gone to Russia even if he hadn't re-established himself with this performance. I think that uh, Southgate, let's be honest, isn't over-endowed uh, with forward options. When Glenn Murray is being considered as a potential uh, England player, you realise that um, he hasn't got the riches on offer that, say, the Spaniards have up front. So he, he I think Rashford was always uh, going to go. And I think the other um, uh, United player who's definitely going to go is Jesse Lingard alongside him. What about Paul Pogba then? Obviously, he was ruled out of the match uh, through injury, picked up an injury in training on Friday. United didn't miss him, did they? I don't think they did, but that isn't to say that if he played, 
he wouldn't have had an influential game. I think he owes um, United uh, a, a, a spell of good form. He's been off form for a long time. And there's talk about him not being played correctly, about Mourinho preferring the two disciplined uh, midfielders uh, of Matic and McTominay when they're playing that system to sit in front of the uh, back four. And obviously Pogba isn't as disciplined as McTominay. And so where do you fit Pogba into that? There's talk of him playing on the left of a midfield three. That's where he prefers and enjoys. But the opportunities to do that are limited at Manchester United. And he really does, he needs a run of good form. And maybe it'll come. I think he's a fantastic player. I think he, I think the chances are it will come. But he's definitely, he's not kicked on. He's suffering a bit from second album season. Uh, so sorry, second season syndrome. I said second album syndrome there. Yeah. He's not a pop star. No, I thought Despite that, the haircut. Very true. Second season syndrome. I thought that was going to be some sort of really nice link there, Jim, as well. <laughs> never mind. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no links there. Let's focus on Liverpool then. Um, four clean sheets in five matches coming into the weekend. Loris Karius settled as the number one. Virgil van Dijk looking like he'd made a difference as well. Andrew Robertson impressing. But then at Old Trafford, they just look like them old, their old selves. Yeah, uh, the issue is plan B. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, uh, that... Uh, that he's got one. I mean, interesting, you were talking about um, Gareth Southgate being there and looking at, uh, at possibilities. And Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who for a long time when he was at Arsenal felt frustrated that he wasn't being played in central midfield, here was a real opportunity for him to show Gareth Southgate, I belong in, in central midfield, didn't quite come off. Having said that, Ian, you know, they really pushed on in the second half. I think that uh, Klopp at half-time had realised where the issues were, realised that Lovren was being completely uh, bullied by Lukaku. Let's get the ball forward so that we have possession and, and keep United on the back foot. And, you know, towards the end, they were really firing and, and, and pumping away. I, I, you know, I don't think... It was a bad, bad day in the office for them, but I don't think it was symptomatic of a decline there. A bad day in the office for Liverpool. It certainly was that for West Ham as well, wasn't it? A very messy afternoon, a 3-0 home defeat to Burnley and, and all sorts of trouble off the pitch and on the pitch, actually, uh, as well. What, what do you sort of make of that whole situation? It's a real worry what's going on uh, at West Ham. Um, there's a, a huge um, dislocation d- between the, the, the leadership at the club and the fans. Um, it would help if they were winning matches, no question, but there's still you know a huge issue about identity. The sense that the identity has been ripped out of the club, the heart's been ripped out of the club uh, by the move from the uh, bulling ground uh, to the London Stadium. This was meant to be kicking them on to becoming the big um, uh, London club on a level with... Uh, Arsenal on a level with Tottenham. Uh, it seems to have put them into uh, reverse. And what was particularly sad um, about Saturday was it was the anniversary of Bobby Moore's death, the great hero, the great symbol of West Ham. And it started with a memorial for Moore, which should have been a unifying point. And by the end, there was that terrible picture of uh, Sir Trevor Brooking, a great West Ham man, looking alone and forlorn, sitting in the director's box, wondering what on earth is going on. 
When you look at the challenge that David Moyes has got now, he was talking yesterday about trying to get the fans back behind the team and push them on. But is that going to be possible? With well, all the fans going seem on? divided, don't they? I mean, we were reading in midweek uh, that there's a real split um, along political lines amongst the uh, fans. So that they're, they're fighting amongst themselves. Um, there's intimidation going on there. Um, that there's not a kind of unified. Uh, voice against the board. The board um, appear to be living in some sort of uh, dreamland that they think that that you know that that they can progress at the uh, London Stadium. It's it's a real mess, and it's not what was envisaged. They were absolutely convinced that the move to the London Stadium was going to send them up into the top, well, Champions League positions. Just a word on Burnley as well, because we can't forget them. A fantastic 3-0 victory for them. The first away win in the Premier League since November. Back-to-back victories now for them as well. Do you give them any chance of, of catching Arsenal, maybe with the, the, them having one eye on the Europa League? It's a possibility, and if so, it would be quite remarkable. I was looking at the combined wealth of the owners of the Premier League. And if you look at the people who now own Premier League clubs, you know, you're not talking about millionaires, you're talking about billionaires, multiple billionaires, apart from at Burnley, where the combined wealth of the ownership of Burnley is eight million quid. You know, this is just an example of how they are punching so far above their weight. A lot of it is down to the shrewd management of Sean Dyche. If they get in the Europa League... I mean, you were talking there about West Ham. The assumptions around some of the clubs that they will have beaten to get there. It is quite a remarkable story. Speaking of remarkable stories or unremarkable stories or recurring stories, however you want to label it, we're less than 100 days now to the World Cup and finally the build-up can begin because we've got our first injury crisis. (laughs) Harry Kane, that's a worry, isn't it? Absolutely. Kane is... uh, the, the captain, you know, uh, leader, legend, is that? I think that's the terminology. I mean, <laughs> he is uh, the, the world-class um, component of the team. And uh, you know, to win a World Cup, you need six or seven world-class com- components. If you've only got one and he's injured, that is a serious problem. It looks as though he's going to be out for five or six weeks, which paradoxically could work in England's favour because it gives him a rest and an opportunity not to... Uh, be exhausted but to have sufficient time to come back fit let's look on the bright side and say that's what's going to happen well it sounded like it's a similar injury to one he suffered last season um, back in September 2016 now the layoff then was seven weeks so that's to the end of April a similar sort of uh, of layoff but it's not just him is it Deli Alley went off injured as well Danny, Danny Rose, Rose too yes. it's all going well isn't it oh well you know Gareth Southgate must be sitting at home looking at his list of players for the international break and just thinking nope 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 he was always going to have to do that <laughs> anyway was. wasn't he Glenn Murray gets more and more likely for a call up <laughs> When you look at Tottenham, though, I mean, if there was any chance of a, a of a hangover from their Champions League disappointment, a 4-1 win at Bournemouth pushes that to one side, doesn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, watching that game, I mean, towards the end, Bournemouth were desperately looking for uh, an equaliser, having gone 2-1 down. He ended up playing basically 4-2-4. He had a four-man front uh, line, Eddie Howe, and uh, I think that was the problem. They were caught on the break. Um, And Tottenham are magnificent on the break. They are so quick. Um, Son is so quick. And and the fullbacks just move forward at such pace. 
In terms of Bournemouth, you spoke to Steve Cook ahead of this match, didn't you? A big interview in the in the Sunday Telegraph. What's he like? He's a very um, determined character. He's he's been uh, in the lower divisions. He's been with Bournemouth uh, since they were in League One when they only had three stands uh, at, the, at the at the stadium. And you know now they're in the Premier League. He and there's a core of them in that team, like Charlie Daniels and and so on, who have been with the club since they were in League One, some of them even when they were in League Two. Also, the manager has been there. And they've, having seen the difference that Premier League life affords them, not just financially, but in, in everything, the they food. don't want to lose it now. The food, exactly. I, I, I asked him, well, you know, what, what, what's the biggest difference since they've been in the Premier League? And he, well, money's obviously, but... Basically, it's the food. You know, the food is so... He said, we've got our own chef who comes on the bus with us and they don't want to lose that. <laughs> the luxury of the Premier League, eh? Uh, let's move it on then to the dramatic, karmic twist that we had at the Emirates Stadium because Arsenal found the cojones at the same time as Troy Deeney lost his. <laughs> that was quite a twist, wasn't it? It was a twist. Um, I thought uh, um, uh, Jack Wilshire tweeted on Saturday uh, to Troy Deeney saying, uh, let's see who's got uh, cojones. And I thought, oh, what a hostage to fortune, Jack. No, no, no. Uh, (laughs) But it worked out. But Arsenal are so capricious, aren't they? You know, they are up or down. There'll be Arsenal fans saying, we're back. You know, Mkhitaryan's so much better uh, than Sanchez. And, you know, if you're relying on Henrik Mkhitaryan, let me tell you, you're in big trouble. But, you know, everything in the garden is now rosy for Arsenal. It's all fantastic. We've got this great side. We're going to move forward. And then they'll lose away from home and it'll all be a disaster. They seem to be, there seems to be no middle ground with Arsenal at the moment. It's certainly been a mini-revival, though, hasn't it? There was an impressive victory, of course, at Milan. They've won as well uh, against Watford here. Arsene Wenger's 700th win in charge of Arsenal as well. Is there any case now for him staying on? Well, I think that the, the absolutely critical win was the one against Milan because I thought Milan were probably going to present a, a, a step too far for them. And really... They've got to do what Mourinho did last season with Manchester United and win the Europa League so that they get Champions League qualification. Because as Wenger himself said, the position they're in in the league at the moment means they've got to rely on two teams going into free fall. And that isn't going to happen. Yeah, one might. But when you're that far behind, you can't rely on two. So they've got to win the the Europa League so I think the Milan victory was absolutely critical because let's be honest I think Milan were probably the strongest team left in the tournament apart from Arsenal A good day for Wenger a good day for Petr Cech as well saved his first penalty for seven years in the Premier League finally reached 200 clean sheets as well as had to wait 12 matches for that and a great day for Mesut Ozil as well who's now officially better than Eric Cantona and Dennis Bergkamp Really? What In, in what terms? That, that is, I've never heard that phrase ever used before. When I say officially better, sort of better, he's the fastest player ever now to record 50 Premier League assists. It's taken him 141 games and that's two quicker than Cantona and that's five quicker than Bergkamp. Oh, I see, right, right. So, so officially uh, better. I, I mean, when he's on song, uh, uh, Ozil is a magnificent creator. No, no, no doubt about it. I, I think uh, when he's on song, the trouble is... You know, he's um, he's not a um, a man who uh, can keep his head up when things are going wrong around him. 
Speaking of things going wrong, Mauricio Pellegrino at Southampton, a 3-0 defeat to Newcastle, now just one win in the last 17 Premier League matches for Southampton. He said after the game that I am the manager of Southampton, but how much longer will that be the case, Jim? Well, I thought Luke Edwards put it very, very well in the Sunday Telegraph when he was talking about Newcastle and he was saying they've effectively got a championship team, a championship squad with a world-class manager and look where they are. And it seems to be almost the opposite at uh, Southampton. They've got a very good Premier League uh, squad or at least a squad that, of course, that they've they've sold most of their players to Liverpool, but they kept on managing to reinvigorate the squad. And and Pellegrino seems to. Have, I, w- I was at Southampton um, last week, and they've not won at home. They've not won at home since November, and they're losing away as well. That is a combination that has only one direction in it. They've got some really tough games left as well. We've got. Um, they've got West Ham away, Arsenal away, Chelsea at home, Leicester away, Bournemouth at home, Everton away, Manchester City at home, an away game, away game at Swansea to fit in as well. That looks really, really tough. It is. It? I think of of the teams down the bottom, they've got the toughest running. And when you can't win at home, you can't even rely on points coming in at home. That's where you've got the real the real issue. If there's one team in more trouble, that's West Brom. One manager may be in more trouble as well. Alan Pardew, he says he's going to speak to his bosses. How do you see that conversation going? Well, who are his bosses? That's the the question at West Brom. This is a club in such crisis that they did probably the most unprecedented thing I've seen in uh, the Premier League. They sat their chief executive before they sat their manager. So who he's going to be talking to, it could be interesting conversation. You know, go into an empty office. Eight points off safety, though. Is that it for them now? I think so. I, I, you know, the, the problem they've got is that above them, there are a lot of teams scrabbling for survival who are going to pick up points here and there. You know, the, the teams that still have a chance of getting away. So Swansea have still got a chance of getting away. You know, all, uh, uh, Watford, all these teams above them will pick up points. And that means I think they, they are cut off. And also, how are they going to pick up points? No, if you're if you're losing at home to Leicester quite as badly as they did, um, where are they going to get points from? Um, and if you look at Alan Pardew's record, it is very, very poor. There may be questions asked of whoever is in charge. Maybe those questions have been asked, and that's why they're no longer in charge as to how Alan Pardew ever got appointed in the first place. Crystal Palace, a team down there with West Brom, battling against relegation. Their latest defeat came at Chelsea. You were at Stamford Bridge to watch it, Jim. Was that just a perfect warm-up for Chelsea, for Barcelona? Perfect warm-up. I saw, when, I, when Palace came out onto the field, I thought, you know, you couldn't get a more uh, Barcelona-like team, could you, than Palace? They played, they're massive for a start. They're a really big bunch of lads. They played 4-4-2 with two huge target men in the first half. And Chelsea, you know, it was the complete opposite of the kind of... You know, when managers are planning a match, they often get... uh, They have an 11 against 11 and they often get the opposition to mimic uh, the the opposition they're going to face in the next game. It was the complete opposite. But Chelsea completely destroyed them in the first half. And then um, Palace brought on Wilfried Sahar, who has been injured for a long time. His absence has coincided with their decline. And um, he really made a big difference. And actually, towards the end, 
I think Antonio Conte would have brought off Willian, would have brought off Hazard much earlier if it had been comfortable. But he needed to keep them on the pitch towards the end um, because of what Palace were doing to them. So it was quite a tough examination for him. Palace not won a match since the 13th of January in the league. Obviously, there was that comeback for Manchester United against Palace, this defeat at Stamford Bridge as well. But there are positives in those performances for Roy Hodgson. Still. Well, if you look at uh, Hodgson, the biggest positive he's got is that his injured players are coming back. You know, um, Mamadou Saku was on the on the bench. He's hugely influential as a figure. Uh, Zaha's coming back. Kabai is coming back. Uh, you know, I think that they they and also compare their running to West Brom's. You know, they've got five games, I think, of their remaining eight against teams around them. And there's a real opportunity for them. And honestly, Will Sahar is as, is as good a player um, as anyone in, in, in the bottom 10 teams. And I think he will make, if they can keep him fit, that is the, the thing that will probably save them. Speaking of teams around them, Swansea and Huddersfield. The most, the most one-sided nil-nil draw I think we've ever seen. 81% possession for Huddersfield, 30 shots to zero. How have they not won that football match? <laughs> Quite incredible. <laughs> A brilliant performance uh, by Lucas Fabianski in the Swansea goal. Uh, Swansea players throwing themselves in, in the direction of the, uh, of the ball every time. And, uh, you know, an absolute backs to the wall. I mean, we saw it in... Par excellence with Juventus. That is how to defend. Swansea came close. Was that a missed opportunity, though, for Huddersfield? Um, yeah, I think uh, David Wagner will think that that was two points thrown away rather than a point gained. Um, Huddersfield are the complete opposite of West Ham um, in that this is a unified uh, club. The fans are behind the manager. The board's behind the manager. The players are behind the manager. The manager understands the club. Um, they're, they're a hugely um, progressive side within the community. And I, and, and I think that, you know, that kind of communal spirit is what you need in a relegation struggle. One last game to mention, Everton 2, Brighton 0. Everton up into the top half of the league. They're actually only six points off a European place now as well. I mean, things have not gone perfectly for Sam Allardyce at all, but they could still salvage something in the remainder of this season. Yeah, Sam's had a really interesting effect because his, his immediate effect on the team was, was very positive. They suddenly got a bunch of points and then they had this steep... Uh, decline and the fans started to turn against him. There was a, a a few issues there, but they've really recovered recently. And actually, Wayne Rooney, very influential in that game. He was playing as a kind of holding midfield player, the quarterback spraying the passes around. And whether they've got enough quality, Allardyce certainly knows how to organise a team. Whether he organises it in the manner in which the Everton fans want it to be organised is another issue, but he certainly knows how to organise a team. Really influential, but just don't let him take penalties. So this week saw the first Englishman since Gary Lineker to pull on a Barcelona shirt as young Marcus McGuane appeared off the bench for the Spanish Giants. The Telegraph's chief football correspondent Sam Wallace joins us now to tell us more about the young star. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ian. So tell us more about him then. Well, he's an interesting one. He did sign a professional contract at Arsenal um, and he left in January. I mean, he, he went to Barcelona... Obviously, he signed. You, you, if you sign a professional contract, you are signing it with 
with uh, the the bona fide Goliath that is FC Barcelona. But he plays for Barca B, who um, are their fabled second team that Pep Guardiola and Luis Enrique have managed in the past. And he plays for them. He's played about four or five games for them in the Segunda, in the second division. But he played in, in a uh, Catalan Super Cup game, which they very much see as a senior appearance for the club. And yeah, he's a boy from Greenwich who... I think Barcelona have seen something in him and he wasn't going to sign a new contract to Arsenal. Uh, his contract was up in the summer. Um, he didn't, he'd didn't. he made a couple of substitutes appearances in the Europa League at the end of last year. From what I'm told, he had lots of options. And uh, But Barcelona, not not just because it's the fabled Barcelona, but because they effectively have what we would say is you know a championship team who are who train at the same training ground and and he's playing second tier football in Spain every week which is a a pretty good place to start. It's quite a new path almost but it seems to be now a quite well trodden path. There's a lot of examples of young English players making this sort of move. Yeah, I think it's it, in the last 12 months it's it's really the pitch has really changed so uh, you know obviously we all know about Jadon Sancho going to Borussia Dortmund leaving Manchester City very much this one of the best players in that under-17 team, uh, Chris Willock leaving Arsenal for Benfica. And then there's a couple of uh, loan loanees, high-profile loans. So Reese Oxford, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, and there's the usual path, the Chelsea players are going to Vitesse Arnhem. And Mason Mount's having a good season there. So it's definitely changing. The really the big step is actually leaving clubs in England and, and signing, signing for these clubs. And, and then I think, then I think you really are sort of jumping in with two feet, and also, and also the clubs that sign you have got more of a. I think there's more of an incentive for them to develop you because you know your value rises, and then they, and then they potentially make a big profit. And I, I don't doubt that for the likes of Sancho, one day they will come back to England. Uh, it's an intriguing way of finding first team football, and um, I hope that it will be something that a lot more young players do because I, I think the bottom line is this country is producing better players, so they are going to get those kind of offers. You wrote about the example of Rian Brewster as well in your Sunday Telegraph column and the decision that he's got ahead of him now, of course, top scorer at the Under-17s World Cup for England and not yet signed a professional contract at Liverpool. Yeah, so he's he's still a scholar at Liverpool, which is remarkable really, given that most of the players at his level, uh, you know, a really top player in that age group, would sign a pro deal on their 17th birthday, which is the earliest they can do it. Um, he's very much keeping his options open by the sounds of it. I mean, he may well stay at Liverpool. He's already left Chelsea once when he was 14. So he's he's obviously quite an independent-minded boy and, and, and he, he makes decisions for the good of his development, which is which is good to hear. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't have any insight into whether he'll stay at Liverpool or not, but the very fact that he's kept his options open this late would suggest that he's, you know, that he's thinking about going. So it'll be interesting to see where he ends up. And again, I think you're looking at Germany, uh, possibly Spain. I mean, there'll be lots of clubs in the Premier League that will want him as well. But whether they be able to offer him the first team football that he clearly he clearly wants, that that's another matter. McGuane isn't going to play uh, on Wednesday. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, when Barcelona take on Chelsea, um, wh- where do you see that lying? Do you think Chelsea have got a chance? I think I, I think it's going to be difficult for them, isn't it? I mean, I think that I think it would have been if they'd taken a, a one goal lead there, then maybe they'd have had something to defend. I just think Barcelona are guaranteed to score at home, aren't they? And it, you would feel that way. So, so it, then it's a case of can Chelsea keep pace with them? 
I mean, I would, I would never underestimate Conte's ability. I think he's up there with Marino to get a performance on the night out of his players. Clearly, you'd, you'd make Barcelona favourites. But Chelsea have been there before. I just think that in terms of the players they once had, they haven't got that, haven't got that core from from the old days that won them that Champions League in 2012. And I, th- it's hard to see them. It's hard to see them beating Barcelona um, or getting a high scoring draw on their own patch. Conte's former club, Juventus, uh, showed them the template, didn't they? Against uh, they had a very similar kind of um, maybe an even worse um, home game against Tottenham. And and then through a fantastic um, defence and and counter attack game at Wembley, beat Tottenham. Do you think uh, that Conte has anybody who could play like that uh, for him? I think he certainly. I, I think he certainly has good players. I mean, I think there's always a tendency to sort of say, "Oh, these players aren't aren't good enough just because they've had a bad run in the league." Um, but they, they, he's got experienced internationals. I mean, he's not, he's not totally, it's not totally beyond the, the possibility that they could do it. Um, it's, it, it's, it's just that, you know, you look at that Juventus team and it's two out of the last three years. They've been in, the, two out of the last three finals they've been in. So clearly they're a team and they may not have that much longer to go in terms of players like Chiellini and so on, but they, they have got that experience and, uh, and that comes with time really. You know, Tottenham are, they're only in their second year in the competition. They got they'll be in it next year, I should imagine. So um, you just learn that over time. But I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Conte hasn't got the players. I just think that they're up against an exceptional team. Yeah, no bigger stage than the Camp Nou, like you say. Thanks, Sam. Cheers. Of course, not just Chelsea in Champions League action this week, Jim. Also, Manchester United a nil nil draw in the first leg against Sevilla. Only really memorable for a David de Gea moment from David de Gea. Other than that, it was pretty. Uneventful. Do you see it being a, a different type of match at Old Trafford or still quite tight? I think Jose Mourinho will want it that way. Will well, it? it'll be tight, but United have got a score. So, you know, uh, maybe Marcus Rashford will uh, continue his little uh, vein of form. He tends to, doesn't he? He tends to have these moments where he gets goals uh, in, in a spell. Um, and I imagine he'll probably start uh, alongside Lukaku. Yeah, and add to his collection of, of big game goals as well. Liverpool this season at the weekend, he scored against Manchester City in the derby. Last year, he had some really vital goals in the Europa League as well. Yes, he did. And, and, and he burst onto the scene the previous season against uh, Mitterland in, in the uh, Europa League. Um, he's never phased by the big uh, chances, but United have got a score. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Line Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Now, Phil Neville has been given his first taste of international management this week as England's women finished second in the She Believes Cup after a thumping win against France, a draw to Germany and a loss to the United States. Following all the action for The Telegraph was Luke Edwards who joins us now. Hello, Luke. Hello. So, Luke, what was your first impressions then of Phil Neville's Lionesses? One of the, the, the big things that stood out for me was the fact that they are playing a much more aggressive, offensive, attacking style of football now. 
bearing in mind the number of training sessions that Phil Neville's had, I thought it was actually quite impressive how quickly they'd changed from a what was really a fairly cautious counter-attacking style in a way, um, certainly against the best teams. Uh, and they, they really try and play on the front foot. And in the first game, I mean, they absolutely blew France away. I, I've, 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 you know, I've not been covering women's football all that long, but long enough. And it's it's probably easily the best performance I've seen. Just absolutely outclassed them and fa- absolutely fantastic display. And bearing in mind, France drew with the USA and thrashed Germany in their other games at the tournament. That really was an impressive result. Um, the Germany game, again, very attacking. Probably should have won that game. Uh, conceded two dreadful goals and had lots and lots of chances and, and didn't take them. So they should probably have beaten Germany. So that would certainly seem to suggest um, that they are the best team in Europe. I think Holland might have something to say about that, the European champions. But but then against the USA, unfortunately, USA saw them coming. They'd obviously scouted the first two games uh, they realised that England had changed their style of play and they adopted a high press and and, and rushed them in possession. And really, unfortunately, I, I, I thought the USA were far stronger, far better um, and deserved to win more than 1-0. So I think that was a little bit of a wake-up call. I think the problem England have is that Phil Neville has got the job to try and turn the third best team in the world into the first best team in the world. You know, there's a lot of expectation on that England women's team. They're a very, very good team. I just think that they're not a they're not a brilliant one yet. Has he got talent coming through? Or is it roughly the same side as his predecessor had? That's the other encouraging thing he's done. I mean, that he brought in Abby McManus, who's a centre-back for Manchester City, Kira Walsh, who's a ball-playing defensive midfielder of the type that the men's team would absolutely die for. Uh, and then there's Me- there's Melanie Lawley, who uh, who really caught my eye. Fantastic winger, really, really good on the ball. Uh, and the sort of rare talent that, that England don't produce, effectively. Um, men's or women's football just glides past players with the ball at their feet. And I think those three players, they're new to the squad and, and I think they've freshened it up. And I think, as I, I've, as certainly I've written for the, for, for the Telegraph uh, online, you need to do that outside of major tournaments. In the year between a major tournament, really, you need to supplement your squad with sort of two or three players who can slot into the team. And I think that's a massive step forward for, for Phil Neville as he's brought these three players in. Yeah, they were in and around the squad before he arrived, but he's brought them in and he's played them out in America. And, and all three of them now, I would expect, if not in the team, then start, or starting eleven, certainly in the squad. And I think over the, again, over the next 18 months, you would hope that they would push on. They're sort of 22, 23 um, and they are young and, and, and they are new faces. And I, I think that's really, really important because some of those England players are, are, are getting on a bit now and they probably won't appreciate me saying that, but there, there are a few getting on a bit now and they need some, some younger talent coming through. And, he, and he's bloodied those three players in, in this in this tournament and they've done really, really well. So I, I certainly think that's a, a major plus point for him. A new captain in Lucy Bronze as well. How did that role suit her? Uh, I don't think it did suit her, to be honest. Um, uh, I know Lucy fairly well. She's a very sort of quite shy character, um, fantastic player, probably England's best player, um, by far and away their best player. I mean, she plays for Leon, the, the sort of Real Madrid of women's football. Um, but she was, I, I just think it was a little bit too much for her. I don't think she's a natural captain. I think she's she'll be fine as a senior player. I think it was a little bit too much for her. I just didn't see her as a, as a natural captain. And I think it was quite telling 
when we spoke to her after the USA game, you know, one of the one of the first things she said was that she could she couldn't wait for Steph Houghton to come back and take the captain's armband. So I think you know it's one of those where you don't always want your best player to have to be worrying about everybody else all the time. I think we just just want Lucy Bronze contacting on being uh, concentrating on being the, the fantastic player she is, and I, and I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that. Lucy Bronze is probably as important to, to England as Gareth Bale is to Wales. She is that good, but actually her free performances over in America were, were by her standards a little bit below par. Now you mentioned before about the challenge that Phil's got to take England from third in the rankings to first in the rankings. He's certainly looking at everything that he can, even complaining about the, the travel arrangements this week. Yeah, and quite quite rightly so. I have to say, I flew with the team a couple of times, and I was rather shocked to see uh, the entire squad and support staff um, lining up in an economy class uh, on on a dom- on a domestic flight from from New York to um, to Orlando. But they flew from London to Chicago, which is eight and a half hours, and then a connecting flight from Chicago to Columbus in economy class, and then played a game seventy two hours later. Now, okay, women's football might not have the profile we might not be talking about superstars but regardless of whether Phil Neville the last time he flew economy class I can't imagine he's done that for 20 odd years you can't really you wouldn't you just wouldn't ask the men's team to do that you can't imagine Harry Kane and um and Deli Ali hopping on economy class to, for, for a relatively short flight to, to Moscow it just wouldn't happen and I think I think that's just one of the little things that Phil Neville was I think it caught him a little bit by surprise but more than that I think it was about the players and the fact that You've got someone who's six foot four, six foot five, the goalkeeper Karen Bardsley, who actually had to get up on the flight I was on with her and, and walk up and up and down the the aisle because she was, as you can imagine, um, seizing up a little bit. Um, so I think that is something they need to look at. I, I, I don't think necessarily they have to fly first class or, but on 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 in, internal flights. So I'm, I'm not sure that's really the issue. But certainly, if you're asking a team to fly across the Atlantic. Um, across five time zones um, I think you should give them a little bit of comfort I mean the professional athletes and we wouldn't ask our Olympians to do that and we certainly wouldn't ask our men's football team or our men's rugby team to do it so I don't think the women should be any different We shouldn't be asking our journalists to travel economy class either should That's we something we should be taking up certainly straight away Time now for your Hero of the Week and this time we're opening up the dressing up box to praise the commitment of young Manchester United fan Ryland Healy who's caught the attention with his excellent impression of goalkeeper David De Gea. Not content with just wearing gloves and a shirt, young Healy has even drawn on a beard and donned a wig to emulate his hero who in return noticed the efforts and has said he'll send some boots to complete the look. What a nice chap. So in this vein then, Jim, when you were a young lad... Did you ever dress up as a footballer? Yes, and when I tell you who it is, it gives away so much about how old I am that I'm not not sure I'm going to tell you. But (laughs) basically, um, being a Manchester United supporter, when I was very, very small, I remember pulling my sleeves over my uh, hands like that and having a single-figured uh, single-fingered uh, goal-scoring salute. Didn't George happen very best. often. Didn't happen very often. Dennis Law. Ah, sorry. Dennis Law. Dennis was our king. Uh, and that was that. And then when I was a little bit older, I had a Willie Morgan hairstyle, which How- took an awful lot of... Of of work with the uh, with the hairdryer. It looked like it looked like a kind of wedding t- wedding cake. It was three tiered like that. Nice. 
Speaking of weddings, uh, my stag do last year, actually, we all dressed as, as football legends. <laughs> Who were you? Well, being the stag, I had to be a manager. So um, they dressed me up as Kevin Keegan in the full-on I'd love it outfit. <laughs> Headphones, uh, Adidas tracksuit top, the whole lot, really. And I just went around saying I'd love it all night. <laughs> <laughs> Poking your finger at people like Yeah, that. pretty yeah. much, yeah. That's all then from this week's Total Football. Tom Gibbs will be back next week in time for your Monday morning commute. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as well. Our theme tune is by Polvo. You can find their music at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson and thanks to you for your company as well. I'll talk to you again soon. Ta-ra. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.